So I, uh, I do a little bit of climbing up in the Cascade Mountains at home. And there's a peak that I haven't yet attained the summit because the times that I've tried got rained out, which is not uncommon in my part of the woods. But it's called El Dorado Peak. And the, at the top, it drops off 700 to 1,000 feet on both sides at about a 60 to 70 degree angle, uh, a snow slope. And, the, and it's only a foot wide at the top. So what you have to do is if we're roped together, if you were to, for some reason, if you're in front of me and you fall off to the left, I have to jump off to the right to prevent you from sliding down. And if I don't jump off, then you'll pull me down with you, right? But the thing is, you don't want to fall off because it's a long way down either way. And with just keep that in mind for a minute here because uh, we live, as I shared earlier this week, in a time of increasing polarization. You know what I mean? There were days in my lifetime, in this decade, in this century certainly, days when people of profoundly different theological and political persuasion could sit over a cup of tea and still be friends because we'd be like this. Whatever, we still love Jesus, it's all good. Those days seem to be disappearing in a sense, right? And so what's happening is uh, we're, we're moving into these tribes and one group is falling off the edge, the knife edge at the top, into what I call in the world and of the world. In other words, we've kind of abandoned all biblical authority and we still use the name Jesus, but uh, really we've adopted ourselves entirely to the cultural narrative. It's a big risk in the place that I live with people. The kind of political persuasion of the left is so intense in the city of Seattle that it's hard for people to think with discernment at times and you kind of fall off that side. On the other side, though, is the group that says, no, 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 we don't want to be in the world. Uh, and, and Excuse me, we don't want to be of the world, but we're also not in the world. We don't know our neighbors' names. We're not engaged uh, in the issues of the day in any winsome fashion. And such Christians uh, develop a reputation of being you know, boring, judgmental, narrow-minded, and it's, it's not very appealing either. And the reason I share that is because when you look at Paul, Paul's the guy who does it right. Paul does it right. Uh, how do we know? Well, in 1 Corinthians 6, Paul says this. Look, I'm free to do anything. So I'm not going to argue with you about eating meat sacrificed to idols or, you know, circumcision or yet these particular ethical issues that are dividing the church that are really questions of uh, interpretation of the weight of the Old Testament and the New. Paul goes on in Romans 13, and he says, <clears throat> by the way, church, there are, he calls them this, disputable matters. And the disputable matter in Romans 13 was uh, Rome had evicted all the Jews from the city. Then the church begins, and then the Jews are able to come back to the city, and some of them come to Christ. So you guys are all Gentiles over here. You've come to Christ. Now, Jewish people are moving back into Rome and coming to Christ. Only you're like this. Well, how, what are you doing worshiping on Sunday? We, 
Saturday's the Lord's Day. That's the Sabbath, right? Hello, day seven. It's in the Bible, the Bible you guys preach. Oh, and by the way, you don't eat unclean meat. And oh, and by the way, you, uh, you circumcise your children. And you guys are like this. What a bunch of legalistic prudes, man. That We don't do any of that. We worship on, uh, we worship on Sunday. We eat bacon. We don't circumcise our boys because we got liberty. And the, the whole reason Paul wrote Rome, uh, Romans wasn't to create the Roman road so that you would lead people to Christ. He was writing it to address this particular issue. Everything in the book is leading up to that issue. And then this is what he says. He says it's, it's, it's a disputable matter. You know what that means? That means quit hassling them if they want to worship on Saturday. Quit judging them. Quit judging them if they want to circumcise their children. But you guys don't claim the moral high ground because they're living in liberty in Christ. Love each other even when you disagree. That's what Paul says. And then Paul says in 1 Corinthians 6, I have liberty to do everything, but I'm not enslaved by anything. And then Paul says in 1 Corinthians 9, that I'm going to be incarnational and be present wherever I am in the world. So watch this. First Corinthians 9, this is what he says. He says, though I'm free from all, verse 19, I've made myself a slave to all so that I may win some. To the Jews I became a Jew so that I may win the Jews. So when Paul was with the Jews, what did he do? He quoted Old Testament law. He quoted uh, uh, Isaiah to prove how Jesus fulfilled prophecy. When he wrote to the Galatians, which was predominantly a Jewish community, he appealed to Old Testament law all the time. To the Jews, I became a Jew. Ah, but then, uh, to those under the law, I became as one under the law. So, although I'm not under the law, but I became as one under the law, so that I might win those under the law. To those without the law, I became as one without the law, even though I am under the law of Christ, so that I might win those without the law. To the weak, I became weak. I became all things to all men, so that I might all, by all means win some. So when I'm with the Galatians, who are predominantly Jewish, I quote the Old Testament. When I'm standing in Athens, uh, in, the, in the Areopagus, like the city square, right, having looked at the, all the idols on Mars Hill, I, I, now I quote the inscriptions of the idols, and I quote Greek poets. I'm not quoting the Bible, not the Greeks. I'm quoting Greek poets. That doesn't make me a deist, says Paul, or a polytheist. I'm a monotheist, but I'm, I'm becoming Greek to the Greeks. I'm becoming Jewish to the Jews. Wherever I am, I'm incarnating in that moment. Does this make sense? So for Paul, he's not trying to make people Jewish or Greek or Californian or Republican or Democrat. He wants everyone to be what? In Christ. In Christ. Boy, we need to recover that message. And so this is kind of what's at stake here in 1 Corinthians 9, right? So then, I, when I look at that, I go, wow. Like, how does he do that? It's really significant. Um, I travel, and I grew up in Fresno. And uh, where I grew up was, uh, at least in my house, I'd call it an alcohol-free zone. Do you know what I mean by that? Like my dad said, Christians don't drink. That's what he said to me. And I believed him. 
And so, okay, Christians don't drink. Fine. I don't drink. Fine. And then, the very first time I taught in Germany, I ended up uh, with a student who took me to visit his family. And I spent the weekend with his family. And because I was an American, he threw a big party. And it was the party to end all parties. I mean, it was, it was his sister, her husband, his niece and nephew, his parents, and his grandmother, who at the time was in her 80s, and this is in like 1991. And, you know, we're out on this outdoor deck over the forest, and there's, it's a typical German meal. There's bratwurst. There's sauerkraut. There's, you, you, I mean, you guys know, right? And it's German hospitality at its finest. And there's tons of beer and wine, just tons of it. And everybody's drinking, including the student that I've been teaching all week. And so what's happening in my mind is my head's going like this. Ma'am, what? No, wait. These guys can't be Christians. And who was drinking the most of all? The grandmother in her 80s, right? Beer after beer, boom, boom, you know. And then the party goes on for three hours, and then she invites me over to her house. And she says, hey, I want to show you something. And so she takes me to her house and shows me a scrapbook of her life, basically. And she said she, right after she was born, her father was drafted and conscripted to fight in World War I and was killed immediately. And then she married, can you imagine, she married in 1936, and then her husband was conscripted by, by Hitler and sent to the Eastern Front. And then she moved to Dresden, of all places. And, you know, we bombed Dresden. And she had this in a scrapbook and showed me this. And then the war ended, and uh, the, the wall went up, and half her family was on one side and half was on the other. And her husband was missing in action. And I, I said, did you ever think about remarrying? She said, no, no, no. I'm a one-man woman. And I purposed I would never marry because I believe he was still alive. And then she said, and in fact, a year and a half after the war, he showed up. He had walked home from the Russian front and showed up. And she told me this whole story of poverty, death, bombing, loss of her dad, loss of her husband. I said, how'd you survive? You seemed like such a joyous woman, you know. And she points to her Bible. And she says, every morning, I'm on my knees and I meet Jesus. And Jesus gives me the strength to get through every day in a way I never could on my own. Praise be to God. And then she does this and takes another sip of beer. And suddenly I realized, oh, guess what? Faith comes in many expressions. Do you see? And so you, then you go from there to Nepal and it is anathema for any Christian ever to drink alcohol in Nepal. And you go to Africa, and it doesn't matter if it's 85 or 95 degrees. If, if I'm in Africa and I'm with a pastor, I have to wear a necktie because that's what they do. And so Paul is saying, look, we don't impose our cultural expression of the gospel on anyone. Rather, we incarnate. Does, does this make sense? So to do this, Paul says, is not easy. It's not easy. Sometimes we think that we're not imposing our culture, but we're actually imposing the gospel, and we're actually imposing our culture. So here's what Paul says. Here's the, here's the, here's the, the key. 
He says, don't you know that all who run in a race run, but only one receives the prize? Run in such a way that you may win. Everyone who competes in the games exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, we an imperishable. Therefore, I run in such a way as not without aim. I box in a way not beating the air. I discipline my body, make it my slave, so that after I've preached to others, I will not be disqualified. Right? So Paul is saying here, for me to live, to walk on this edge and not fall into in and of the world, or neither in nor of the world, but to be in the world but not of the world, to walk that knife edge, this is what he says. I discipline my body. So this is where we get the notion, really, of, of spiritual disciplines, which is what we're going to talk about uh, this evening. And uh, before we get into the spiritual disciplines, to set spiritual disciplines up, I want to kind of explain to you the mystery of spiritual disciplines. Because there's a verse, it's in Philippians 2, which says this. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling, on the one hand, for it is God who is at work within you. And Paul, in the same book, he says this. Apart from Christ, I can do nothing, but in Christ, I can do what? All things. So this is so hard for students uh, when I go and teach in torture schools because the predominant theology of a torture school is this. The Christian life isn't difficult. It's impossible. There's only one who ever lived the Christian life, and that's Jesus. And he lived it perfectly, but the good news is that one who lived it perfectly now lives in you, and so you now have at your disposal all the power of the resurrected Jesus living in you who will enable you to be who you could never be on your own, right? So that's really good news. And then we teach this. Uh, we're not adequate in ourselves to consider anything is coming from ourselves. Our adequacy is from God, right? And then students are like this. Well, then what's my part? Like, okay, does that mean I just lay down and if God doesn't, you know, miraculously yank me out of bed, open my Bible, put it in front of me, like, is there a role that I have to play? And Philippians 2 says it this way. You work out your salvation, for it's God who's at work within you. Now, the best way to explain that is to take you to Mark 4, not Mark 8, but that's the parable of the seed and the sower, right? Uh, so how many live in the San Joaquin Valley? Raise your hands. Anybody in the valley from here? couple, yeah. San Joaquin Valley? Visalia, yeah, yeah, that's, that's there. So I mean, if you live in the valley, you grew up agriculture, then you know, one thing you know is this. Whatever, you can have your crops, and you can have your water. That's a problem for you guys, I know, but you could... If, in a different world, you could have your water. Um, but if you got your crops and you got your water, but the soil is not good, if the soil is not good, what? You got nothing. You got nothing. It, everything depends on the health of the soil, right? And so what you see when you read the parable of seed and the sower is you begin to understand, oh, I, now I see the role that I need to play in my own growth in Christ by looking at that parable. So, if we turn to Mark 4, real quickly, Jesus taught a parable, verse 1, large crowd. You all know the parable, but so I'm just real quickly, I'll say it. The sower went out to sow, and as he was sowing, some seed fell beside the road. The birds came and ate it up. Other seed fell on the rocky ground and immediately sprang up, but had no depth of soil. 
And so after the sun rose, it was scorched and withered. Other seed fell among the thorns. Thorns came choked it, it yielded no crop. Others fell in the good soil, and as they grew and increased, they yielded crop and produced 30, 60, 100 fold. So watch this. Principle number one here that's so, so important is this. The seed is good. So there's not any problem with seed, right? So the parable says the farmer goes out to sow seed. The seed's the word of God, which, by the way, isn't simply the Bible, but Christ himself, right? The living word. And the point is there's zero problem with the seed. When the seed finds good soil, it's a law. If it finds good soil and is watered, it sprouts, it grows, it reproduces. And in fact, in a different part of Mark, it says this, the growth and the fruit happen, and then quote, how the farmer does not know. Right? So watch this. It's so important, both for us and our kids, that we pass this message on, you're not responsible for your own transformation. You have a seed, and the seed grows how we do not know. But we are responsible, hear me, we are responsible for the quality of the soil, right? So we do spiritual disciplines in our church, and we call it uh, soil care for the soul. Does that make sense? I'm caring for the soil that is my soul. So let me just say this here again so we don't miss it. It says in 1 John 3, 9, He, Christ, His seed abides in you. So, so Christ's seed's in you. So if your soil is good, boom, you're going you're gonna to live the life for which you're created. It's going to be a life with the fruit of the Spirit, love and joy and peace and hope. You'll be crossing social divides. You'll be living into your calling. You'll know your gifts. You'll go the distance. You'll be like that beer-drinking German lady in her 80s, still in love with Jesus. You'll, you'll be there the whole way. Why? Because you were caring for the soil that is your soul. But that's your job. You care for the soil, and the seed will do the work. So then we kind of look at the principles here, and what we discover is that the soil is variable. So the, so the seed is fine. Don't blame the seed. I hear this all the time as a pastor. Somebody uh, is going in for an oncology report, right? They go, oh, it better not be cancer. Oh, I'm going to have a word with God. Like God is dishing out cancer, right? Somebody is, is, is mad about stuff done in name, and they blame Jesus. Listen, a lot of bad stuff has happened in Jesus' name. Racism in Jesus' name, colonialism, slavery, greed, domestic violence, misogyny. So, yeah, it's not the fault of the seed. It's our misrepresentation of the seed. So never, ever uh, blame the seed for the problems that accrue into the soil because the seed is fine, always fine. When you pray for somebody to be healed and they die, don't blame the seed. The seed in good soil always bears fruit. But our responsibility is the soil, right? So here's what we see. 
Three kinds of soil at least, maybe four. Some soil is totally unresponsive, right? Completely unresponsive. That's the soil that uh, falls on the road and the birds come and eat it up. When it falls on the road, there's not even any soil, right? It's not gonna, nothing's going to happen. So some seed, like we encounter Christ and it just bounces off. And I just want to say here, because it's important, that when you go through the scriptures and you kind of look, you kind of ask a question, like, who are the people that the sea bounces off of? Like, it's not the hardcore pagans, usually. It's usually people like you and me who have a good dosage of the gospel and, and yet are only willing to go so far with Jesus and no farther. And then, when we're asked to go farther, we completely say no, right? i give you some examples. Uh, in Acts 7, these guys aren't Christ followers, but they're religious. Stephen is preaching, and in Stephen's sermon, essentially this is what he's saying. Stephen says, hey, when Jeremiah came, you didn't listen to him. When Amos came, you didn't listen to him. When Hosea came, you didn't listen to him. When Malachi came, you didn't listen to him. I'm here, and you're not listening to me. And it says in the text in Acts 7, literally, it says this. They covered their ears, and then they drove him out, and they stoned him. And I just find that hysterical, right? I mean, not that they stoned him, but, but that they covered their ears. Like, you never listen. And like, here's their response. Oh, yeah, watch this. And then they drive him out, and they, and they kill him. And these are the people who are protecting God's temple, right? And so we need to be careful if we think this doesn't apply to us, because the greatest hardness comes from people who think they know. In Mark 2, Jesus is on the scene. He's the Messiah. The religious leaders have been waiting for the Messiah for at least 400 years, right? So, and then here he is in the room. And when you read Mark 3, I think it is. No, it's in Mark 2. Four times in Mark 2. Um, why does Jesus speak this way? He, no one can forgive sins except God. And then this. Why is he eating and drinking with tax collectors and sinners? Why do John's disciples fast and Jesus' disciples go to parties? Why are you doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath when they're picking grain on the Sabbath? And then Jesus goes to the synagogue and there's a guy and his hand is withered. And watch this. The religious leaders were watching him to see if he would heal so that they might accuse him. Like they weren't interested in the healing. It's just one thing. What's he going to do? What's he going to do? And if he heals, they're like this. Ah, gotcha. How sick is that? So listen, we've got to make sure. I mean, I have to pray this all the time. God, keep my heart soft to what you want to teach me. Because I have categories, and I have ideas, and I have doctrines, and sometimes they get fossilized, and God can't even break through anymore. And if I think I'm done growing, then I'm in the worst place that I could possibly be. Paul, at the end of his life, Philippians 3, says this, I haven't yet attained it. 
Paul says in 1 Corinthians 13, we look through a glass darkly. We don't see everything clearly. We're always open to the inbreaking of the Holy Spirit, teaching new revelation, or we should be. And some of the people at greatest risk are we who are religious professionals because we think that our job is just protection. It is protection, but we have to be careful that we don't stop growing, right? So some soil is utterly responsive. Some soil is polluted by aversion to affliction or persecution, right? So when the parable is interpreted, right, Jesus says uh, in verse 16, there's those that were sown in rocky places. They hear the word, they receive it with joy, but they have no firm root. It's only temporary. And then when affliction or persecution arises because of the word, immediately they fall away. So the key in this phrase is the word, uh, verse 17, they have no firm root in themselves. Uh, Cross-reference with me to Ephesians 3. What is Paul's deepest prayer? He says this, that his prayer is for us that we would be rooted and grounded in love. If I'm rooted, what does that mean? It means, it means that the roots are, are going down and down and down, always in search of nutrients to draw up into the life that is the tree. And then those, those nutrients go up through the xylem and phloem on the edge of the trees. And it's really like a pressure system, like a blood pressure system. And the, and the, and the nutrients go up, and they make their way out into the branches to the needles where through the magic of sunshine and chlorophyll, cells reproduce and trees continue to grow. But it all starts where? Boom! The roots. Take the roots away, you got nothing. You got nothing. So, so here's the thing, you guys. Root work is invisible work. It's boring. Boring work. N nobody talks about root work, right? What do I mean by that? I mean the things that Jesus did that nobody saw. We read in Mark 2. Jesus got up, and he went to a far away to a lonely place early in the morning to pray. And then it says this, as was his custom. So he had a spiritual discipline of prayer and solitude. He did it. No one's looking. Doesn't make the headlines, but it defines his ministry. Because when you go through the book of John, Jesus says this, uh, the, the, the biggest phrase in the book of John is not my own. My teaching is not my own. My authority is not my own. My will is not my own. My judgment is not my own. My works are not my own. My time is not my own. My power is not my own. And finally, at the end of his life, what does he say? My life is not my own. I give it up freely because that's the Father's will. Everything that I am, says Jesus, I am because I'm available 24-7 to the will and strength of the Father who is expressing life through me. And then watch this. This is what Jesus says at the end of his life. As the Father sent me, now I'm sending you. What does that mean? I'm asking you, says Jesus, to go out into the world in the same relationship with me in the way that I've been out in the world in relationship to the Father. So that even as the Father found freedom to express his life and will and authority and judgment and power and wisdom through me, now my life and authority and power and wisdom will be expressed through you. But you must then, to live that life, learn to say what? Not my own. It's not mine. But if I can do that, and I live this life of surrender, that's a life of meaning. That's a life of hope. 
That's a life of transformation. But it begins with these ridiculously unglorious habits, like getting up before the kids do and spending two minutes praying and having an email verse sent to you if you don't want to open your Bible. Whatever you need to do, do it. Because it's those things that help you get rooted in love, right? We'll talk more about this in a minute. But he says here, because they didn't have a root, affliction and persecution cause it to fall away. So affliction and persecution can kind of derail our faith if we're not rooted. Then uh, the next category of soil is choked by worries, riches, and pleasures, right? He says here, others are the ones on whom the seed was sown, verse 18, they heard the word, but the worries of the world, the deceitfulness of riches, the desire for other things, enter in and choke it, and it becomes unfruitful. Now, this word worry is one of my favorite words in the Greek language, and here's why. Because the word uh, merimnao in Greek means to be divided. What a great description of what it means to be worried, right? Worried means I'm divided. It means on the one hand, I can stand up here and say, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. And then on the other hand, I can say, I lost four hours of sleep last night because the market is tanking and I don't know how I'm going to retire. Do you understand what I'm saying? Like I can say both those things. Why? Merimnao. My heart's divided, Right? I'm trying, to, I'm trying to serve, in a way, two kings. And I want to tell you, in, in the West as a whole, we're wealthy, we're educated, we're upwardly mobile, and it's very easy to get divided, right? So that in my city, my congregants, want they want to see justice, mercy, healing, and the human trafficking, they're hard at work. They're making sandwiches. They're working with homeless people. They're helping with uh, refugee resettlement. We have, a, we have a shelter for women in the basement of our church. Good stuff is happening. And these same people, like we want season tickets to the Seahawks and the symphony. And we, we want to we go skiing all the time. And, and we want to travel. And we want to be aware of everything that's going on in the world. And we want it. I mean, we want it all. We want it all. We, yes, we want to serve God, but we want this whole other world, right? And hear me, God's not opposed to these things. God's saying to us, don't try to have it all. That's what he's saying. He's saying, look, when the day's done, you don't serve two masters. You're either in the kingdom and then enjoying whatever God gives you, or you're building your own kingdom and you're trying to be religious over here. But if you're the latter, if you're, enjoying, if you're building your own kingdom, it's, it's your financial autonomy, your recreational autonomy, your sexual autonomy, your pleasure autonomy, your reputation autonomy, your, your, your social network autonomy. Like if, I, if that's my kingdom and it's mine and, then I, and, I, and I add Jesus to it, the text is telling me this kingdom will choke the seed over here. The soil will not be able to sustain what God wants to do. So what we have to do, all of us, is we have, Jesus said it in Matthew 6. He said, no one can serve two kingdoms. You can't do it. 
I'm either in with this one, and then I happen to live in Seattle. I'm a big fan, man. I love football. I love skiing. I love Gore-Tex and coffee. Great. But that's just because that's where I live. If I lived in Rwanda, I'd love tea. And I'd love gorillas. And I'd love, it'd be a whole different world. It's fine. It's fine. But that's not my choice. Are you with me? Like, we just live in a kingdom, but our loyalty is not that kingdom. Our loyalty is this kingdom. And this kingdom is not political. This kingdom rises above that, right? So it's really, really vital we see here that we, we can't have these divided hearts, right? And then what he says is then there's good soil, right? And the good soil are those who hear the word, accept it, and bear fruit. They, why do they bear fruit? Because they're rooted. How are they rooted? Spiritual disciplines. So um, we're just going to close here with a, uh, some hints to a couple of disciplines. We're going to talk about prayer and solitude, meditation, Bible reading, and hospitality. And then we'll close it out after that. So what do I mean by disciplines? Many people in my world in Seattle don't like the word discipline. They go, can we call it something else? Discipline sounds so, uh, you know, narrow. So um, I think it's a safe transfer to call it a habit. To call it a habit. You've got to develop habits. And habits work in our culture because habits are uh, right now very trendy in our culture. Two of the best-selling books in the last three years have been about habits. The book Atomic Habits, and then another book just called The Power of Habit, right? And I read The Power of Habit, and habits are things that uh, you build into your life where there's a cue, and when, when you encounter the cue, you do the thing, right? So, for example, probably all of us in the room have a habit of brushing our teeth, right? I'm not going to ask for a show of hands. <laughs> That'd be too embarrassing. But, um, so for me, the brushing of the teeth happens just before bed and just after a midday meal, All, always. There may be other times for fun, but those are the two, always. I mean, the cue is, oh, it's midday meal? Boom, brush my teeth. Oh, I'm going to bed? Boom, brush my teeth, right? And so uh, my encouragement to you when we start thinking about habits here is to develop cues for, your sp for the developing of spiritual habits. Does that make sense? So for me, prayers, all four of those habits have become a routine in my morning life. I it's a habit. I have this habit where... Uh, my cue is coffee. So I get up in the morning and I make French press good coffee. And as soon as I smell the coffee now, it's okay. This is my invitation. This is it. It's time for the habit. And the habit for me is it begins with Bible reading and then uh, prayer. And I'm alone when I do this, so it's solitude. And it ends with meditation. And meditation... Uh, has to do with chewing on one particular truth over and over and over again. So it, it may be, uh, for example, 
I am completing Christ. And so I'll inhale, I'm completing Christ. I'll, I'll exhale, thank you. I'm completing Christ. Thank you. I'm completing Christ. Thank you. And I set a little, a literal bell on my phone for th- three minutes, and I, and I meditate, you know. And what happens, none of these, none of these habits are shocking, dramatic, adrenaline, excitement, right? What I can say to you as your friend is if you really can show up and be present on a consistent basis, the seed is going to take root and grow and bear fruit. I'm just telling you. You may not feel it on any given day, but what you're doing is you're developing habits of intimacy with your Creator so that you're now keyed in to the heart of your Creator, to the will of your Creator, and because you're united as a marriage, you're tapping into the strength of your Creator. So you're developing a relationship of intimacy through those, those four habits. And as it is true with any intimate relationship, consistency trumps everything else, right? We were married in the room know that uh, hopefully we have some habits that contribute to intimacy in our marriages, right? Uh, there's a guy in Seattle named John Gottman. He runs the Gottman Institute of Marriage. And uh, he teaches at the University of Washington. He can look at a couple and he'll just, like he would interview you guys, five minutes. And after five minute interview, not even talking about marriage, he can tell you with a 97% accuracy whether you'll still be married in two years. Just through body language. It's incredible. Anyway, he's written a book called uh, Seven Steps to a Happy Marriage, right? And one of the steps is every day with your spouse, eye contact and a little bit of empathy. Do you know what I mean? Like, tell me about your day. How was it? Was it good? And you're not, watching, you're not looking at your phone. You're not reading the paper. You're literally paying attention to this person, Right? So my wife and I, we try and do this. We try and do this. I wouldn't say we do it every day, but I would say it's enough of a habit that I could say it's a habit. And I will tell you as well that if that is your habit, some days it's super, right? Super life-giving and meaningful, and you go away like this, man, I'm so glad I married you. You're amazing. Other days it's fine. Other days she could be actually a little bit annoying because she's pinning something on me that I don't want to hear. That's probably true. And to be, other, to be blunt, other days it's boring, right? Because we communicate differently. And, and we'll be, you know, we'll, she'll have her tea and all my coffee. And I'll ask about a thing. And being very typical as a male, I want the very kind of edited version of the thing. And I'll get a flowery, you know, long thing. And I began drifting away, and I'm like, so what you're saying is, and I'll start finishing her sentence, and she goes, I hate it when you do that. Will you please let me tell the story, you know, on and on. And then I go, I'm like, oh, man, here we go, you know. And it's, then it's not a good time. But here's the thing. I've never had not a good time two days in a row and then come to my wife and said, hey, listen, two days ago it was lousy. Yesterday it was lousy. 
I'll give you one more chance. Let's make this really work today, otherwise I'm done, you know. But I would, I'm going to suggest to you that we do this with God. Like we start habits because it's New Year's or because we went to Hume Lake or whatever, and then we're all excited, and then we're in Leviticus, or there's traffic, or whatever. There's some reason, and then we're like this. I don't know where it went, but I had this intent, and it's gone. Don't let that happen. Just start tiny. Start tiny and learn consistency, right? Get a, get a Bible verse emailed to you every day. And just, you know, read it. And write one prayer in a journal. And take a breath and say, the Lord is my shepherd. Fine. Start small and be consistent. That's what the scriptures teach us, right? So those are all what I call inhaling disciplines. In other words, I'm filling my cup through meditation, prayer, solitude, and reading my Bible. But then we all are we're called to have exhaling disciplines as well. We're called to make a difference in this world, to use our gifts, to work for justice, whatever it is. But all of us are also called, in Hebrews 13, we're all called to press hospitality, right? And I would suggest that hospitality is a very, very powerful gift. On Sunday, I referenced New York Times columnist David Brooks uh, in a podcast on which he was a guest. And Brooks grew up Jewish but atheist, married, wildly successful as journalist, author, New York Times guy. His world fell apart. Long story, I won't tell you, but he became a Christian. And he shares this story at the end of this podcast that just, it just blew my mind. He said, uh, he said, the most hopeful sign I've seen for America, the most hopeful sign happens every Thursday night in the suburbs of Washington, D.C. Oh, what's that? And he tells his story. He said, well, one day, my friends, I was in D.C., and my friend said, you want to come over for dinner on Thursday night? He said, I'd love to. Thinking it was going to be he and his wife and the couple. And instead, he comes to the door, and they're like this. Uh, Put your cell phone in the basket. No cell phones. And it, then they walk in, and there's 30 people there. Most of them under 20 years old. High school students. And, and, and they eat. And... Everybody shares, and nobody shakes hands. Everybody hugs, and they learn each other's names. And before the night is over, everyone, everyone in the circle shares a high and a low from the week. And it's not a Bible study. And other than a, a prayer over the meal, there's nothing, there's nothing spiritual about it. But uh, when, the, when the evening ended, Brooks hung around until everybody left. And he said, what just happened? And they go, we do this every Thursday night. How? Why? Well, you know, our son's in high school. And uh, he came home one Thursday and said, hey, could Jake come over for dinner? Because his family is a stinking disaster. Domestic violence, alcohol. He just needs to meet a real family. Yeah, he could come. Jake comes, has a great time. He comes back the next week. 
Third week, Jake says, hey, I got two friends that are in a gang. They have no family at all. Can I bring them? Yeah. Bring your friends from the gang. They come. And within six months, it's a regular event on Thursday nights with people who just need to be loved. That's all. And the rules are, you leave your cell phone at the door, and you learn people's names, and you learn how their day went, and you love each other. And Brooke said, when we go around the table, I realize there's Republicans here. There's Democrats here. There's wealthy people here. There's poor people here. There's gay people here. There's straight people here. There's drug addicts here. There's, there's people who run treatment centers here. Everybody's here. And they're not arguing. Why? Because hospitality is love incarnate, friends. I would just say to you, what if there were 10,000 meals like that in America right now? And that's not that many in a country of 330 million. What if there were 10,000 people? What if there were two in this room? Two couples that said, you know, we're going to do that. We're going we're gonna, to we're gonna, we're gonna open our home to whoever and just love, just love in Jesus' name. Why? Because that's what Jesus is, the one who loves. And you know what? Even if you never believe, you'll know I'm for you. And because I'm Christ incarnate, Christ is for you. I'm the presence of Jesus in the life of every person who meets me, not because I'm a pastor, because I'm a Christian. And so are you. So I, I would just suggest hospitality, great ministry. My wife and I did it for many years, a small retreat center, not an easy ministry. When you open your home to anybody, anybody comes. And uh, you lose curtains, <laughs> and you get criticized, and it's tiring, and it's, a, it's, an, inc it's an incredible, incredible blessing to say, you know what? Everything that God has given me, freely I've received, freely I'm going to give. I remember one year, we, our, our ministry was a hospitality ministry. Like people from all over the world found their way to our little five cabins in the woods. And one Christmas, I had spoken at a retreat on Christmas Eve. And coming down the mountain from the retreat, hit some black ice, crashed my car, Getting home took 10 hours. So we were, we were supposed to be home for Christmas Eve at 6 p.m. And it was after midnight when we got, we got home. And so it's now like 12.30 a.m. Christmas morning. And our kids are asleep in the back seat and we get home. And, uh, you know, we had people from Sweden, Australia, Germany, Vietnam, even as far away as Texas, all at our house, right? And, uh, they, and they, were, they were like this. Uh, we just waited for you. We've got a whole salmon meal. Let's have Christmas. So we stayed up till 3 and 8 and sang Silent Night in five languages. You want to live well? Share freely which is what I leave you with, Ecclesiastes. One of my favorite verses in the Bible. Ecclesiastes 11, 
says this. Sow your seed in the morning and don't be idle in the evening either because you don't know whether morning or evening sowing will succeed or maybe both of them alike will be good. But as for you, sow your seed. So here you are. You're becoming rooted and grounded in love. You're reading your Bible. You're praying. You're meditating. You're, you're practicing enough solitude that you're not overwhelmed by the avalanche of social media and the news cycle. Your cup is, your cup is getting full, you know. And then Ecclesiastes says this. Oh, you got a full cup? Then share. Share. It doesn't matter to me if I'm preaching to 30 people or 300 or 3,000. I don't care. Sow your seed, man. Wherever you are, be all there, and good things are going to happen, right? So my desire for all of us in the room is that we could put these things to practice, and I believe it. If there's only 20 of us in the room, if 20 people took those five spiritual disciplines seriously, starting small, living consistently, we'd change the world. Let's pray. Father, I want to thank you that you've given us a pretty clear path, actually. But that, that verse in Jeremiah that I didn't actually reference says this. Choose the ancient paths. They're there for you. But Israel said, we will not. And I just feel like, Father, when you invite us to care for the soil of our souls, through the simplicity of turning off the TV, opening the scriptures, developing tiny little habits. When you invite us to that, we're at crossroads. May we follow you, Father. Not out of duty or fear, but knowing that that life is the life for which we're created. It's the best life. It's joy. It's hope. It's strength. Take us there. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.